Good evening and welcome to another episode of Complimentary Cinema here on the O&M Stockroom with your hosts, Brian McGarry. And Ken O'Malley. And Ken, uh, what film are we going to review today on uh, Complimentary Cinema? So the film we have chosen today is called The Missouri Breaks, which is a reference to a area in uh, the Old West uh, near the, uh, I guess, the source of the Missouri River. It is definitely a Western movie. Western movie from uh, 1976, directed by Arthur Penn, and starring, among others, uh, Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson. And like all of our other uh, choices for complimentary cinema, we uh, every week we pick a free movie, usually that's available on YouTube, that uh, anybody at home can watch, and we always uh, will include a link in our description below so you can check it out and leave us your thoughts and comments and uh our review of course will be spoiler heavy we just talk about anything and everything so you might enjoy our little reviews if you actually watch the movie and then come in and join our podcast i think that might be uh might be a, just a, a general recommendation moving forward you know or you can just listen to us and not watch the movie or listen to us and then watch the movie and then maybe uh you know tell us if you agreed or disagreed but uh we take turns uh, picking these movies, of course. It was my turn last time. It was Ken's turn this time. And uh, Ken, I'd love to know, what drew you to this film this week? Well, obviously, I saw the, um, you know, Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson were starring. So, that you know, they were the only people listed. The art I saw was a little different than the art I see here. It looked cowboyish. I was intrigued because it had the name Missouri in the title which is uh, the, the state that I hail from. You hail from the, the great old state of Missouri. I do. It's, it's a national embarrassment a lot of the time, but uh, that is where I'm from. And uh, so that the name just stuck out to me, and I, I'd never heard about it. I don't didn't know anything about it before, and I'm like, well, if, uh, if these two people are in it and I've never heard of it, that means either something good or bad. And uh, it goes without saying that we have reviewed a lot of bad movies on this channel so far. And uh, I was thinking the same thing when I realized that Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando were in this because it's 1976. So Marlon Brando has been well into his career for decades now. Right. They've you know, both got, won Academy Awards by they, this point. They've both won Academy Awards by this point. You know, Jack Nicholson was an easy writer. Marlon Brando did uh, The Godfather, of course. So, I mean, these are heavy, heavy hitters. And this is a movie I'd never heard of either. And it goes without saying, um, for those of you who haven't put two and two together yet, this was a huge box office flop. Yeah. It didn't go anywhere, which is kind of a shame because I actually uh, enjoyed this one. Yeah. And one of the first things I said to you, too, was, uh, like, are are you ready for another Western movie yet? Because the last one we saw, The White Buffalo, was not an impressive film. White Buffalo was, uh, it had its moments, but uh, its main problem was, well, Charles Bronson, for one thing. I mean, you got to be a Charles Bronson fan to really get into that one. And this one is, uh, it's got a very different uh, feel and vibe to it. It has uh, turns both comedic and almost uh, dramatic within just moments of each other. It's a very uneven film in that regard, but well mixed. There's there's a bit of variety, you know. I think the part, the reason why it works well is because it's all very slice of life as far as like in, in the normal course of life. Funny things do happen, and dramatic things do happen. And so it's kind of played more realistically, I guess, in that way. 
Um, a lot of things happen that aren't necessarily important to the storyline, but just kind of build that, that little world. world. Yeah, little world building elements. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that um, there's so many uh, shades of gray with these characters. Nobody's really truly uh, good or bad, as you see. Like everyone's motivations are very clear. Well, I, I guess a better way to put it is everyone's motivations and where they're coming from are easily understood. And it's easy to empathize with the characters in this film. That's right. And I think you can see a little bit of each character as far as, okay, I get it. Like, you know, maybe I would think that way if I was in their position. So yeah, it just gives you a good, uh, you're able to put yourself in these people's shoes and see it from their way. Everyone except for, I would say Marlon Brando's character, but, um, (laughs) more on that one later. (laughs) So the film starts out with a few gentlemen having to talk about their uh, their their ranch work, and their uh, one's well well dressed who appears to be the the leader of this little town that they're in, which we find out is a ranch. And they uh, come up to some people in the uh, in the woods. They're having a, you know they're singing old Susanna, having a gay old time, and they're there for a good old fashioned hanging. Uh, apparently, they found one of the uh, a horse rustler who was trying to steal from him. And affecting their profits, you know, which is, of course, you know, very big concern back in the old Wild West. And uh, they decide to administer some vigilante justice or citizen justice, if you will, and just uh, just hang this guy. Yeah, it was a, it was a huge left turn right off the bat because, you know, you just have these people doing small talk and then this group of people singing and dancing. I guess not dancing too much, but really they were just singing and enjoying a picnic. It was a picnic yeah, atmosphere. It was a very festive atmosphere, yeah. And then all of a sudden, we immediately find out what's happening as it happens, and it's like, oh, oh, this is this is this is a hanging. This is not a. This is not just a picnic. Yeah, it was definitely. Um, it was it was definitely a, a kind of a surprising moment for me because I don't really know much about life on a ranch or how they may have necessarily dealt with with issues of crime and justice in the old days. I mean, I've got an idea, but. The way they set it up, it was definitely very effective. And so we find out that uh, the the rich man who owns the ranch is a Mr. Braxton. And the man that he killed was a Sandy Chase who uh, worked for Jack Nicholson's character. And he and the late great Harry Dean Stanton uh, basically have this group of horse stealers that kind of go from place to place and grabbing horses and taking them to relay points and then selling them somewhere else. And they're all, uh, you know, pretty broken up about their, uh, their companion and colleague getting the noose like that. And, uh, they kind of decide, Hey, maybe for our next move, let's go sit down next to Mr. Braxton and do, do our business right in his backyard. Yeah. Which I think is kind of an odd, uh, kind of an odd approach to to that problem you know if like one of your people gets killed you're gonna go buddy up and get cozy in the in the area where it happened i think really it was just all to, so they could get close to him to steal his horses eventually you know what i'm saying set up the shop. long con right exactly and all of this is kind of on the backdrop of like their whole world is like closing in as far as like they talk about kind of in the beginning about they used to have all these different places they could go and like hide away and all these options and stuff so like their whole you know the west is 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 getting smaller you know the west is becoming civilized and and, and lawful on them exactly 
so that plays a lot into that too of you yeah. know we're just going to go where they're they're at and make it uncivilized and uh you know it's also part of the commentary i think yeah absolutely so they uh they talk about how to make some money in the meantime and they mention oh you know one of one of the uh, one of the kids uh little todd portrayed by i think it was uh randy quaid who's also in this the the great nutso randy quaid whom i think has a special uh, place in many people's hearts for many different reasons. He's kind of like a like a long-term Hollywood wacko. He has a special place in the hearts of the law enforcement agencies who are still uh, <laughs> after him, I think. Oh, God, yeah. I, I, didn't, I, I haven't kept up on my Randy Quaid news, but uh, it was kind of surprising to see him in this. You know, a young, vibrant, coherent, uh, respectable Randy Quaid. You know, it's not, not really... Uh, the kind of not really the kind of uh, presence that he exudes these days, but uh, I'll have to look him up after this and see what he's been up to and see yeah. if he's uh, still up to nefarious, uh, uh, irrespectable uh, activities. So he anyway, he's in this film. He plays little Todd. He suggests, "Hey, why don't we why don't we go into train robbing?" And they all mutually kind of di- you know dismiss it out of hand, and then well you know a couple of them go and they. Rob a train, and they're uh, they they bungle it a little bit, but they still make off with enough money to end up buying some land right next to Mister Braxton. Yeah, this scene features one of my favorite little characters in this movie. Oh God, yeah, Nelson, great. Nelson, who is the the post office worker in the back of the, the the last car, and he is just hamming it up. Oh, he is just he he's nerdy. He's <sighs> he's getting robbed at gunpoint. And he pulls out the money bag. It's like, oh, I can't, I can't touch this. It's against the rules. Pull the pin out between the other car. <laughs> well, I'm not mechanically inclined. It was, uh, it was fantastic. That yeah. was a very enjoyable little character in that film. Yeah, that was good. And then, uh, so they just so they yeah, so to steal so to rob this train, they uh, they steal the they steal a bunch of money from the back uh, car, which they disconnect from the rest of the train. And then the train ends up at a complete stop over a bridge. Which uh, I thought was a nice, uh, nice, pretty funny touch because that's not the kind of thing you would normally think about. Yeah, but there's a lot of things like that in this in this movie. It kind of take that left turn that's unexpected, and it it, it sometimes is funny. It sometimes shifts things very dramatic. Yeah, and it's very effective throughout the movie. It is. So after that, uh, after that, you know, train heist, they. Uh, they get some money together, lots of ones and ten dollar bills, which mm-hmm. you know in the nineteenth century, I mean that'll get you quite a fair amount, and uh, you know go a long way. So they uh, so they buy some land, uh, four sections. I'm not sure what that translates in acres, but they buy a little, real real crappy ranch, and uh, they kind of set up a little base there while they go uh, start plotting for some other things. And uh, meanwhile, they uh, I. They never really quite say who did it, but um, Mr. Braxton, the the rich ranch owner, his main guy, gets the noose yeah. where um where uh, they had where they had hung Sandy, the the horse stealer. Right. They kind of allude that it was uh Jack Nicholson's uh, men, but they never really show it to you. Yeah, there there was a couple so, things like that where they just. You know, you just figure it out. You just figure it out. Yeah, they they, they left that one ambiguous because mm-hmm. they um 
Because like all through this movie, Jack Nicholson, who um, his 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 character's name's Tom Logan. They uh, Tom Logan and his crew. They don't. They're not really murderers. They're not really in the business of killing. They're just trying to make some money, and do it as quick and easy as possible, and without actually having to work for you know a living, which. I think a lot of people can empathize with. And and he even says, because when they're discussing the bank robbing earlier and stuff like that, he's like, well, you don't want to get involved with criminals. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're a different kind of criminal than them as far as we're just trying to do this thing. We're trying to steal and sell these horses, but they're not trying to rob people or, you know what I mean? Yeah, they're not trying to like put anybody like in any real danger. On you the know? train, and they don't want to kill anyone. Well, yeah, and it's, it's funny because, you know, Jack Nicholson's, you know, telling Nelson, you know, hey, you can say that you met with Jesse James and lived to tell the tale. And, you know, Nelson's, you know, he's like, you're not Jesse J- James. You know, it's it's obvious that he's not, he doesn't have that in him to be that kind of a, a scoundrel, I guess. You know, but that's what makes this little band of characters so likable. You know, like their first moment in town, they just, very, you know, they buy the ranch and then they very sheepishly go around to a whorehouse, you know, and be like, you know, hey, you got any, uh, got any girls? You know, they can't even, they can't even man up and be like, we're here to party. We want some women. Yeah. For the most part, they seem like decent people. And uh, both Cam, is that right? Cal. Cal. I'm sorry. Yeah, Cal. Both Cal, Cal and Cy are kind of the wise people in the group as far as they're, they're the smart you know, they've, they've been around a little bit longer than the other ones are a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. And so when the younger, more rambunctious ones, you know, oh, I want to just go do something or they're playing grab ass or whatever, you know, the, the wiser two of the group are kind of reining things in and, and keeping them on track. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you got Randy Quaid playing little Todd. You've got Frederick Forrest playing Carrie. Um, a lot of people, he's, he's not a, he's not been in a ton of stuff, but for people who've seen Falling Down, which is a great movie I, I've recommended to you recently, uh, he's got a he's got a, a small but very important role in that film. He plays he plays another one of the younger, more rambunctious kids, and then there's uh Cy portrayed by uh John P. Ryan, who I didn't really know for much, but he was all in the right stuff. He was kinda like a one of the lead NASA guys when they were picking the first uh seven astronauts. So that's, you know, pretty good, respectable actor there. And then, you know, of course, Henry Dean Stanton and Jack Nicholson is, is the, the truly wise men. So they go to this whorehouse. They, you know, they have their fun. and uh, It's also noteworthy. A lot of these scenes, these smaller kind of scenes, like they get you involved in it. And then it just, we go to the next scene. Like they, they don't dwell on it too much. You know, they, they, they just, they get the point across and then we move on. Which works really well, I think, because it shows that that's where like the slice of life comes in. That's that uh, that extra bit of detail, you know, like a little bit of, you know, this is kind of how maybe things were were a little bit back then. I mean, I've read that this was a revisionist Western film. I'm not really quite sure what they mean by that. Yeah. You know, maybe, I don't know, tidying things up a little more than they may have been or maybe sensationalizing things more than they were. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, that would be a subject for another discussion in the future. So after the whorehouse, uh, I'm going to say that again. I just, and you just wanted to say that one more time. Whorehouse. Whore. Whorehouse. <laughs> so after the whorehouse, you know, they go about their business. They start planning their next little thing. And 
Meanwhile, you know, so, so, so Mr. Braxton finds his main henchman dead. Let's get back on track here, you know. And he's like, oh, he gets really upset. So he calls in uh, Marlon Brando's character, Lee Clayton. And Marlon Brando's character doesn't show up in this film till about 35, 36 minutes into the film. And when I saw him, my heart sank. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, no, I was enjoying this film. Like up until this point, we were like, wow, like this is really good. Like this is all like it's very interesting. I was I, I was I was getting into it. I'm I'm liking all the characters. I'm like I'm loving the dialogue in this film. Yeah, dialogue was good. Scenes and like scenery all looks good. Set decoration, you know, definitely a, a, a sizable budget production mm-hmm. with you know a great great cast. And then Marlon Brando shows up, looking like uh like an eccentric crackhead uh, Ben Franklin, you know, with a stylized dress and you know this white horse and. You know, our, our introduction to his character is him hanging off the side of the horse and then kind of peeking around, talking to Braxton's daughter, uh, Jane, played by Kathleen Lloyd, who was in another great film called The Car, also from the uh, the mid-70s. And I, I just, as soon as I saw him, I knew I was going to get irritated. And it didn't take a whole lot, it didn't take very long for that to happen. And now why would that be, Ken? Why would this be? Why why would Marlon Brando be irritating in this movie? Because he just did whatever the hell he wanted to do. That is correct. He uh, basically improvised and ad-libbed his uh, his lines and apparently needed cue cards in his scenes. I could see as far as the character uh, and what, what he needs to do throughout the film, I could see what they wanted. Like oh, what, yeah. the, what the character should have been. Sure. And then <laughs> you can see what he did. It's so obvious. It's so crazy. It, it sticks out like a turd in a punch bowl. He's um, like... Uh, he's supposed to be... So he's supposed to be, quote unquote, a regulator, which is a fancy term for a bounty hunter. Right. Or a mercenary, you know, to hunt down the people that were, you know, stealing Braxton horses and, you know, killing his man. Okay, I get it. So he wanted some somebody with a good reputation... And it ends up being a really like eccentric and flamboyant Marlon Brando making up his lines as he goes, pretty much trashing the script for this film. So like up until this point, we're seeing the film as it was written and scripted. Okay, like we're actually getting the you know, the writer and director's actual vision for this up until Marlon Brando shows up. And then after that, they have to build and work this whole fucking movie, you know, around this like past his prime overweight Hollywood actor, which is essentially what the rest of this film is. Yeah. It's them trying to work around him to get a, keep the story cohesive and keep it moving. And this character is completely nuts. Completely nuts, which is fitting because Marlon Brando was completely nuts at this point in his life. Yeah. You know, if, if not completely nuts, at least... Pretty damn close, I would say. He's like, he he he's like, a, just a very small, tiny bit off from like being like the Joker. Almost, yeah. He he becomes very uh, his his character is unhinged and is motivated more by cruelty than he is uh, justice or in anything that is um, 
traditionally moral and ethical, I would say. So at this point, it's fair to say we both kind of had this like, oh no, like, oh no. Like I, I even said, oh no, out loud. Like this was going really well. And all of a sudden this, this wrecking ball came through because his first scene wasn't really good either. The, um, yeah. it, it would be one thing if it was crazy and it was good, but it was crazy and it wasn't really that good. And the real reason I said, oh no, not because it was Marlon Brando, because I realized it was Marlon Brando at this phase in his life when he had gotten just so lost up his own ass that he was just, well, behaving like this in films. And I knew that when he, and I knew what kind of direction he was going to take when he was introduced in that fashion. I was like, ah, shit, this is what's going to happen now. We're going to have, you know, a weirdo. And uh, to his credit, his character did grow on me as the film progressed. And his, I, I do feel like his scenes got better. Maybe he just needed to warm up into the role for a bit. I think it's also the fact that that character did better in one-on-one interactions than he did necessarily in the beginning too. And it was like this big group and there's no one to like emote back. There was no one to, to play off of. Uh, there was no one to show like a, a reaction in a way that you would um, empathize with. So, um, and I, I do think it just got better eventually. It, it did get better for sure. For sure. And it just, it, it definitely just took time to get there. Mm-hmm. So he shows up and he's, he's basically hired to start looking around and, you know, figure out who did this to his man. And he immediately just kind of zeroes in on Tom Logan, Jack Nicholson's character and, Starts, you know, they kind of have this, uh, in their initial meeting, you know, he's getting a, a, a pony or a donkey out of, out of some water. Forgive me for not knowing the difference. And, uh, you know, Marlon Brando's up there and they, you can immediately tell that they don't like each other and that they're kind of onto each other and mm-hmm. their dialogue. It's a, you know, like, uh, Jack Nicholson kind of insinuates that you, you basically you know, when you shoot a man from a mile away, you basically don't have any honor. You know, you're not giving a man a chance to, to be contrite or to ask for forgiveness or, or even make a you know last statement or anything. There's no, there's no judge and jury. It's just execution. You know, and Marlon Brando's character really counters with you know it's all about achieving the task. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a real single mindedness of, of purpose. Which is certainly uh, kind of a chilling thing early on. You kind of really see what this guy's all about. It's not he doesn't care about the finer things about about justice. It's about just getting something done. It's about doing what he wants to do. Absolutely, as we find the way out. he wants to do it. You know, which is why I think eventually it plays better when you get past how how crazy and eccentric it is. When you just get to that, you know, he's a, of a single goal you know a single mind mm-hmm. and the way he gets there seems chaotic but it's all heading towards that one point and um kind of what you were talking about there too is i think the underlying the base of the movie because you have this group of people who are horse thieves obviously that's not a good thing like that's you would consider maybe to be a bad care the bad guys or something you also have the ranch owner guy who is you know penny pinching and he's all you know uh, obviously is fine with killing people if he thinks they're lawless and stuff like that. And then you have this other person who all he cares about is the hunt. 
mm-hmm. and killing people and doing things his way. And all of these groups of people could be seen as a bad guy or under a certain point of view, a good guy. You know, some people say, oh, well, the lawman obviously is just good. Or, you know, the landowner is good. I don't guess most people wouldn't say a horse thief is good, but <laughs> they could be seen under a, a, a much different light. As the film progresses, this group of people, I mean, even from the very first scene when we're introduced to the horse thieves, you never get the vibe that they're just scoundrels. Like there's some loose talk about, you know, sleeping around a little bit and they're talking about their their jobs, but it's... But like you said, they're sheepish about it. It's not like they're trying to violate anyone or like... You know, they're like, you know, they're just they're, boys they're, getting up to some mischief. Yeah, that's really, that's really it, you know, and they're, but they're, you know, they, they take pride and dignity in their work too, to a point. And they're not, they're not after like chaos, I guess. I, I, it's hard to explain, but you, you basically take an immediate liking to them. Like they have a rapport, you know, and they take the news of, you know, their colleague Sandy Chase's death with a solemnity, but also with just acceptance that their way of life does involve risk. And uh, I just, you immediately just kind of like them all immediately, just even in spite of yourself. And Mm -hmm. it becomes very quickly, quickly becomes difficult to empathize with the, the ranchers themselves. But once they bring Lee Clayton in Marlon Brando's character, you definitely start to like the ranchers more because there's an even more screwed up and darker presence to compare them with and contrast them with. Mm-hmm. So it's also worth noting that the other character, Jane, is kind of seeing um, Todd. Tom. Tom. Sorry. <laughs> Jack Nicholson. Yeah. yeah. Jack I'm Nicholson's so Tom. Okay. So anyway. So there's also this other character, Jane, uh, that's Mr. Braxton's daughter, and she is seeing Tom through this point. So she, you know, she wants to be involved with him. You know, she he has a lot of charm and he's very smart. So, um, you know, they kind of play back back and forth with each other, and uh, so she's like another character that's kind of linking them all together. Mm-hmm. As far as she sees him for who he is, at personality and. He's interesting, and uh, he really cares about things. Yeah, you know, he's not just—he's not just a, a devil may care horse thief. Like he actually has, you know, he has some respectability, and he—and she also picks up very quickly that he's not quite on the level. Mm-hmm. You know, like his backstory doesn't quite add up. You know, the, their story to get into town, like oh, I was a—I dealt in farming implements. It's like yeah, nobody buys that, and she she figures out he's an outlaw pretty quick, but doesn't care too much. It's basically, you know? it's like it, it, it's almost one of those like you're not one of those kind of outlaws. Like it's like you're, she kind of figures that out too. It's like, 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 like he's the charming bad boy, but not the not the guy going around just shooting people. You know, right. like he doesn't even like carrying a gun, really. Mm-hmm. You know, and and but she also like abhors like you know senseless death too. You know, like she was very upset at Sandy Chase's hanging, and she definitely has a strong sense of morality too. And I think you know at the first meeting between Tom Logan and Jane. When he first comes to town, uh, you know that comes up, and I, th- you know, and, th- and as that was his friend and the person he worked with, they immediately kind of bond over that. Even though he puts on airs like, "Oh yeah, you absolutely have to hang the thieves," and blah blah blah. 
You know, he just under the subtext underneath that is like, yeah, okay, I like you. You get it. You know, so you see, you definitely see that that glint of recognition in him at that meeting. Yeah. So, you know, so they start carrying on. And um, so, and what's funny is, you know, as they begin to begin their relationship and start carrying on, uh, Mr. Lee Clayton, instead of, you know, actually looking for horse stealers, he's spying on them Mm -hmm. and being kind of pervy and weird about it because he's Marlon Brando in the seventies. Yeah, it's really weird and creepy. <laughs> it is weird. It is weird and creepy. And He's just he, uh, watching him roll around in the in the grass and uh, smiling and singing, humming to himself and stuff. All ad libbed, by yeah. the way. All of his all of his singing in this was was ad libbed. And there's there's a couple scenes of that which is unnecessary, but you know it's whatever. It it is what it is. It adds to the madness it of add, his character. It adds to the madness of his character. His unhinged attitude. You know, it's funny. So like, you know, the character of the regulator is, you know, he kind of does what he wants. Guess what? He was portrayed by an actor who does what he wants. You know, it makes me wonder how was that character originally intended? Mm-hmm. Was it truly a, a character that did what he wanted to do? And- See, I could have seen it as someone who was even more reserved as far as playing the angle of playing things close to the chest and, um, you know, not telegraphing what he mm-hmm. his intentions are with these other people. Um, the way that Brando's character does a little bit at a couple points. Uh, I could definitely see him being played more that way. Yeah. Um, and just not crazy at all, you know? So maybe more proper, uh, but not crazy. So while, uh, while Tom and Jane are carrying on most of the rest of his, uh, his crew, they go up to Canada to try and steal some horses from some Mounties that predictably, predictably goes, you know, terribly awry. And, you know, one gets a, sh- a finger shot off. They lose all their horses. And one of their one of their people, uh, little Todd, gets separated from him. And he ends up running into Lee Clayton, who kind of ensnares him and ends up uh, dispatching him, so to speak. And you see, uh, I think that was the first scene you were saying that uh, I don't know. Why don't you get? Why don't you? Why don't you tell us your impression of that initial meeting with them and everything? So I think it really turned. It was a turning point for him as far as you saw be, beyond the madness. So he started playing a different character. He pretends um, to little Todd that he is a horse thief. You know, he he tries to get his trust, basically saying, "Oh well." He tells him what his fake business is, you know, like, oh, I'm this is where I was and I was trying to steal horses and it's not going so well. Like, what are you up to? And little Todd doesn't doesn't go for it. You know, you really have the impression that little Todd's just going to give everything away. But he actually, uh, you know, he does a good job and keeps his mouth shut and he, he protects his friends. But but he's also not perfect and he's not great necessarily at talking. So he does slip up as far as he doesn't have a good story. And yeah, he, he can't remember the name of the town he's from either. And he was trying to run away, you know, obviously. So, uh, so we just came across as suspicious. And, uh, so even though he didn't give up any information and he didn't really mess up, um, because Lee Clayton is so unhinged, he already knows that he is who he's looking for anyway. And he's already going to kill him anyway. You know, it's like he's made up his mind about it when he first meets him mm-hmm. and he just spends like the night just toying with him. Yep. You know, and it's, uh, 
but it's it's just a great interaction between Randy Quaid, who would become insane, with Marlon Brando, who kind of was insane at that point. Yeah, it was a nice. Uh, it's kind of Randy Quaid gives an excellent, earnest performance, though. He really does, though. I mean, this is this is young Randy Quaid when he was had all of his mental faculties and emotional faculties intact. And uh, I just kind of wonder if maybe he caught something from Marlon Brando <laughs> during the filming of this. He's like this guy's on to something. Yeah, he's on to something. But you know, he. Uh, but yeah, because like in that scene, I mean, you really see the quality of of Randy Quaid's character, how he's really trying to do right by his people, but he's just inexperienced and just, you know, caught off guard. And you see Marlon Brando's metho- methodology with approaching this character and demonstrating how this this regulator operates as a as a cunning cunning uh hunter yeah and it doesn't he's not at all um what you might might have expected as far as you know they said earlier like oh he just shoots people from far away no he really doesn't well he's, here he he really gets up close up close and personal and and, uh, and really tries to sell that character to to get close to him and uh how he does dispatch with Randy Quaid's character is uh they're, you know, cro- crossing a river, you know, with a couple of horses and he ends up tying him around with some rope and basically drowns him. And while he's drowning him, he gives him just a brief moment to give him some information and then he lets him drown. So it's like you, you really get the feeling he never cared about information anyway. He just wanted to just torture the guy a little bit and then let him let him, you know, pass on. So you really you so you really figure out with that particular one that he really is a cold-blooded son of a bitch. Yeah. Immediately worried for everyone else in this film at you, that point. You really are because you know that he's not because that's the scene when you really figure out like he doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about doing the right thing. Like he just wants to kill people. Cuz up until this point we knew he was crazy, but we weren't you know, his motivation could have just been to get paid or, you know, whatever else. But it's at that point where you you really can tell that he's just doing it because that's what he wants to do. It's just what he wants to do. He just wants to go around and just for an excuse to kill people. And uh, after that, you know, um, little Todd's horse is given like a, a bullet cartridge, like tied tied to a saddle or whatever. And then that horse makes it back to the uh, Tom Logan camp and. Tom Logan, you know, realizes what's happened to little Todd. Well, because this cartridge is used from a special gun. A very special gun. Which it's noted that he, that, um. A Creedmoor. That, yeah. Yeah. That Lee Clayton has. He's known for using. Yeah, so he has that special cartridge. So, you know, Tom Logan immediately knows. I didn't quite pick up on that, so thank you for explaining that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he ends up, uh. So Tom Logan gets it, and he immediately goes and confronts Marlon Brando's character in the bathtub, and that is a fantastic scene. Mm-hmm. The uh, the uh, level of intensity and hatred that Jack Nicholson's character is uh, emoting at that point is spectacular, and it's you can feel it, and you could like cut it with a knife. It's it's so rich and. Uh, and again, Marlon Brando's character, Lee Clayton, he is just so aloof and just so nonchalant and just doesn't give a shit that Jack Nicholson's caught him in the bath. He just doesn't care. He's like, oh, shoot me. It's like, or, or you know, well, you know, now nah, I'm not going to do anything. I need to eat first. My tummy's <laughs> rumbling. 
I mean, the guy is absolutely batshit. Yeah. You know, and he, uh, you know, he even turns his um, back to Jack Nicholson at one point. Just like, yeah, go ahead and shoot me. And, you know, doesn't it's quite. even worse than that, though. He just doesn't even acknowledge that anything's going to happen to him. Yeah. I mean, he's really, uh, you know, and, and and you realize, you know, and just Jack Nicholson, Tom Logan will not. He just will not kill uh, Lee Clayton in this because he just he has too much honor. He just won't shoot a man in the back. Mm-hmm. You know, he wants to like face him out in the open, and you know, Lee Clayton is just so far gone that he just no, he just won't even play that. Won't even won't even give him the opportunity. And it just shows you a lot too, as far as what society at this point is pointing to the fact that Lee Clayton is like a person to be desired as far as doing, he's the lawman bringing justice. And so this is kind of showing the flip side of that is that this horse thief is the person who is honorable and stand up basically, you know, not even just, I want to shoot you. Like he doesn't even want to shoot him out in the open either. It's just, he's being put in this situation. It's well, he knows that his friend was murdered. Right. You know, and it's personal. Mm Mm-hmm. Just a, v- a very tense exchange, you know, and then after that... Oh, and, oh. and a brilliant ending to the scene. And then he the gun goes off, and he's, uh, it turns out he's shot the tub so that the water's draining out. And it just goes everywhere in the downstairs dining room. But it's just a beautiful kind of, you know, you get your, your gunshot, you know, your gunshot moment, and then it's how it's resolved. And Jack Nicholson just walks out. Just then, to inconvenience him. Yeah. And then so um, after that, you know, they, they decide to steal some steal Braxton's horses, Tom Logan and his crew, steal Braxton's uh, horses. And at some point, you know, maybe take care of uh, Lee Clayton. They don't they don't necessarily go into specifics on what they want to do. Yeah, they and, just and they're they're gonna split up and go different ways too, so that they're not as conspicuous. So yeah, each one of them is gonna take horses and go a different direction. Then they're all gonna meet up afterwards after they get all the money, basically. So they're just gonna get out of town, and you know that'll solve their problems. Solve solves them for a little bit. Yeah, and then what ends up happening? You know, hey, they get the horses. They get the horses. They get their money. And then, you know, Lee Clayton shows up, you know, how does he, uh, do you want to talk about that one a little bit? Well, he, he, he comes in, uh, it's been shown early in the movie that he looks through binoculars. That's another big part of his character. So you see through his eyes, uh, early on when he's, when he's creeping on people. Mm-hmm. So you see through those binocular lenses. So we get to a scene where one of the, uh, the gang members is, um, was the first one <clears throat> so the first one is Cy, uh played by um played by J- john ryan and he's uh he's gone to like a an acquaintance's place his farm and that's right sells him some horses he has dinner there's a really great exchange where they you know uh they, they uh, the, the the homeowner you know quotes thomas jefferson inside kind of looks at him's like who is that in in this really naive and innocent way but they also show yeah. in a good way that like he's not dumb, you know. He may also makes a good point too um, about when when the the homeowner kind of makes an offhand comment like, "I know these horses are stolen, 
You yeah, know? like yeah, that was a very expert rebranding. You know, were you behind that? And he's like, you know, so he's definitely a man of skill and intelligence, but just basic academic learning is just you know not within his reach, right? Which I think is true for you know his many very, people today. His very course. practical knowledge very for where practical. he lives, yes, but not uh, about the world. So, uh, but yeah, he 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 ends up going out with the uh, homeowner's <laughs> wife, and uh, yep, right after dinner they they meet up at the like a side of a barn or something. She gives him and, she gives him five minutes to do whatever. Yeah. So, uh, in the middle of that, then we get the the gunshot out of nowhere, and it turns out that the the regulator has been stalking him all along. Yeah. Um, right in the middle of, of you know, I, I guess we could call that coitus interruptus. Yes. You know, it's right, big. right in the middle of the act of sexual Congress, he gets rubbed out. It's another one of. <laughs> wow, I went there. Wow, so uh, it's another one of these kind of left turn moments, though, where it's like, you know, they don't set up that he's about to get shot. You know what I'm saying? Like, Not at you all. You don't ever see these things coming. I mean, you can see that eventually they're going to get hunted. You think something might happen? Because you know Lee's yeah. out there, and he's yeah. he's crazy. You, but, did, you uh, didn't expect it right in the middle of getting it on with the wife of the uh, the man you just sold your stolen horses to. It's it's very effective though. It is effective, you know. It, it is a little sudden. bit startling, you know. Yeah. And then uh, the next guy that they get is uh, Carrie, played by Frederick Forrest, and uh, the the bastard shoots him in an outhouse. Yeah. And he and he ends up dying with his with his with his ass hanging out. Yeah. You know, like so. In front of a whole town full of people. In front of a town full of people. I mean, so Lee Clayton really has absolutely no scruples about doing, about giving it, it, first off, anybody a chance to defend themselves. He always strikes them when when they're at their most vulnerable. You know, and you've got, you know, in both cases, both these men had their pants down. You know, I mean, that's pretty low. And that says a lot about what just an asshole that character is. And then uh, the third, the third, the next guy he gets is um Harry Dean Stanton's character uh uh Cal. And uh, the way that the way that that one started was actually really impressive. He basically has like a zip line of some flammable liquid and shoots it and it explodes over the hut that he's in and just sets it and him on fire. Uh you know uh, Cal's able to dunk into some water and you know, stop the fire, but I mean, he's messed up pretty yeah, bad. He's very badly burned. Very badly burned. I mean, and that's in the middle of the night when he's in his pajamas, no gun, no nothing. You know, and then, you know, then the guy finishes him off after a another insane Marlon Brando speech, of which we're we're subjected to a lot of Marlon Brando monologues in this one. Thank God they don't go on for too long, but there's there's enough of them to, you know, you could almost make a drinking game out of that. Yeah. And then uh, at some point, you know, Tom Logan figures out what's been going on to his friends and he finally tracks down Lee. In the scene leading up to that, we have a scene of just Mar- oh, this this scene really just it, it took me a minute to just kind of kind of deal with it. it. It's Marlon Brando being lovey towards his horse. You know, the uh, I can't remember whose lips he said the horse had, but the horse had the eyes of Cleopatra. And then he takes out his harmonica and he's like, 
you know, oh, I dedicate this song to the only woman I ever loved. His horse right behind him. And it's effective in showing that he doesn't care about people. You know, he, he can't seem to, to relate to them in that re- in that regard. But man, that was just a weird, uncomfortable scene. And he's, exactly the kind of thing I was kind of groaning about at the beginning of his uh, his appearance in this film. He's just in his own universe. He really is. <laughs> and nothing in that scene has anything to do with anything else in the movie other than it's just him. His, his, I mean, I guess his character, if you want to look at it that way, just being this crazy, weird dude out in the middle of the woods. It's uh in some respects it's like a it's a self-indulgent thing. You know, it's a very self-indulgent scene for that for that actor. And the reason I think it plays better later in the movie than it did earlier is because once he starts taking people out, it really breaks up that uh like the building tension. Sure. It really breaks it up in a good way because you kind of need that at this point. Um, you know there's going to be a confrontation between the two remaining people. Yeah, Tom they're, Logan and... They're the main yeah. people, and you know it's going to be a big showdown. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so so it's a nice little... It is a nice little scene to give insight into him and just how he comports himself when no one's watching. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, in a way, a slice of life, a little uh, world-building moment. and And it is effective at that. It's just the way that Marlon Brando chose to go about it was kind of weird. But I think we, we established that that's uh, just the kind of actor that he was at this point. And uh, so after his little little ode to his horse is the final confrontation between Tom Logan and Marlon uh, and Lee, Lee Clayton. And do you know what I love about this scene? It shows you everything and nothing. Intense, very intense. It's a very intense scene. Yep, and it's over a little more quickly than you might expect. Mm-hmm. Very enjoyable. Very enjoyable and very well done. And you know, I, I read later that uh, apparently um, Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson absolutely hated each other on set, and I think you can see some of that not only in the bathtub scene but this scene also. Mm-hmm. And this the uh, the scene where they're in the garden. That was oh yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. You can really see it back and forth with the two of them, and it's almost a shame that they didn't have a little bit more together. It really would have been powerful. Yeah, it, it might have been better for the film. Yeah, for sure. Just to have one, even just one more scene with them mm-hmm. would have been nice. But we got we got four solid scenes. You know, we got their initial meeting by that little creek. We got their meeting in the garden. We got their uh, their bathtub. bathtub scene, and then we got uh, got that final that final face to face, if you will. Yep, I think it was great. Um, I really liked, like I said, all their interactions. Maybe their their supposed real life hatred helped build that up, as far as you know, motivated them to be a little uh, a little more antagonistic. It's hard to see how it couldn't. You know, it it, it certainly added some spice. To the uh, to their performances, I think certainly on Jack Nicholson's part, yeah, because as, as he was the sane one of the two, mm-hmm. I think you can see a little more honest frustration with uh, Brando's eccentricities and the difficulties he was creating on set with his improvisations and ad libbing. 
And uh, the fact that apparently, yeah, I, I mentioned this, I'm going to mention it again, that he needed cue cards while he was, you know, doing his performances and kept looking away from whoever he was acting with, you know, uh, sloppy stuff, I think, you know, for an actor of any caliber, to be honest. So, and uh, yes, I mean, that's pretty much a, a good rundown of that film, I think. Let's talk about the, uh, let's talk about the best performance in this film. Who, uh, who ranks uh, up at the highest there for you? I think uh, Jack Nicholson uh, would be, for me, the best, hands down. Um, very charming in a believable way. Uh, you know, good mastermind of for the group. And uh, you can really see how his mind works throughout the film, which is a good, uh, when you see it and you, no one has to explain it to you, that really makes a character better, I think. Oh, yeah, you know, the... the- yeah, absolutely. And uh, my uh, my close, I'd agree with you on that. My close second would definitely be Harry Dean Stanton. Mm-hmm. He does not have as many uh, lines and as much screen time as some of the other characters, but he really exudes uh, a fantastic presence. Yeah. And he has one scene in particular where he's talking about an episode in his youth, which kind of formed his worldview. And uh, he delivers that one really, really well. And it's understated, but also intense, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of fire underneath his words that is it's smoldering, but not quite burst into flames. And he's he has very he has a lot of wisdom, and um, you know it's really played up as far as he he's been around the block, so he he's definitely the character that knows the most. You know, you can tell he's just... He definitely feels like the old man of the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in a good way. A very good way. He, he keeps himself the cleanest. He has the most uh, the most um, public, presentable public persona, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Jack, and, and, and also yeah. going along with them, like that kind of that whole group, also respectful. Yeah. You know, in his own way. Yeah, absolutely. So those are, the, those are definitely the two, the two greatest. And... Uh, so for every every great performance, you have to have uh, the weakest performance. I mean, Brando's obviously crazy. So he's obviously crazy. I don't know if it's the worst, but is it the worst? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know if it's the worst. I mean, it's obviously it's just bad shit, weird and crazy. But uh, it's it, it turned out not to be bad. Um, so I don't know if you could say worst. It's definitely off kilter and strange. Yeah, it it definitely. I'll say this: do it just to reframe the question a little bit. Does anybody else's performance in the film bring the entire film down a notch? No. <laughs> no. So I, I, I think in a, in a worst, I mean, worst may not be the best, most appropriate term, and I but think, I think it, I think, uh, I think everyone else did decently. Everything, everybody else did great, but everyone else Brando, believable. but Brando brought the film down a notch. Yeah. He definitely brought it down a little bit. He, he went too far. He did go too far. He, uh, I think he had a good idea with what he was trying, and then he just took it too far, and he just didn't know when to when the when the fuck to pull back. Yeah, so mm. I think it would have been interesting to to have a character where he was a little wacky on the surface to put people off, but then under you could see that that wasn't really who he was. That would have worked as a character. That would have worked, but, but instead this was just, it was he just, was wacky all the way through. He was just wacky all the way through, and that felt one dimensional to me. Mm-hmm. And also, it was just distracting to the tone of the film. Yeah. It was. He felt like he he felt anachronistic to the film. 
right in some respects and especially in a film where you're trying where you're trying to see things from three different points of view it's impossible to see from his point of view because you can't get into his uh, that's a really his place that's a really great point so I think yeah so I think we could agree that yeah worst performance probably Marlon Brando on this it, this movie would have definitely been elevated with another um, another more serious actor or just a, a, a playing a more serious character in that role. You had uh, you had asked me uh, before we did any any additional little reading on this, you know, who would have been a great f- uh, fill in for the Lee Clayton character instead of Brando. And I'm not as well versed in this era of film or in Westerns in general. So I couldn't really think of anybody off the top of my head. And then in the reading, uh, Steve McQueen was offered the role, you know, a, a bad motherfucker of an actor who did some real classics. Uh, but he turned it down because at the time, at least, he was saying he was retired from acting. And he would have been fantastic in that role. And I think if uh, Steve McQueen had been in the Lee Clayton role in this film, it wouldn't have been a box office flop. And I think the film really would have been elevated and it really would be one that people talk about today, maybe. Yeah. It certainly wouldn't be one of these forgotten films that... You know, at least for our generation. I mean, nobody, I don't know anybody our age who, in, in our age group who really knows this. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of a shame because three quarters of this film work really well. Mm-hmm. And is actually really, really enjoyable to watch. And even saying that he, that Brando was the worst, we still both came around on him. He did grow on us, yes. Um, because ultimately, as batshit as he is, he's Marlon Brando. And that's the thing that just irks me about him is that he's he irritates the snot out of me, but he's also really good at what he does too, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 justly so. And he's justly famous for that reason. Even you know, many years after his death, you know, he was one of the greats for a long time. And I, I, I just wish he had taken a different approach to that role, you know. Some improvisation, but also film the script, you know, Mm -hmm. do some both. And then maybe let, you know, the director pick the best bits instead of making the director give up and just let you do what you want. Yeah. You know, because that that really did affect the film because it's all about it's all about the end product. You know, you can bring your best to the table, but it's, you know, a film is a group effort. Everybody has to be working towards a common goal here. And if you're just there just to do your thing and cater to your own artistic and creative uh, efforts and uh, desires, that's not necessarily going to produce a satisfying end result for for the people involved and for the audience that you're trying to, uh, you know, entertain or reach through this. Yeah. But he did come around. Yeah. He did get better. He was okay. He was okay. He just... It just this could have been a great film, I think. I agree. Instead of just a a good film that nobody's seen. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, the story was good, characters were well written, and uh, th- there's just so many good things going on in this film. And uh, I I have to say that the only reason it wasn't well received is because he was so off putting. He was. I mean, I can't think of anything else in this movie that people would look at and say, oh, I didn't really like that. Oh, there, there are a couple things, though, now that you mention it. So there is there is the use of the N-word a few times earlier in the film. Uh, 
Some animals were fil- uh, were harmed in the filming of this. Yeah, that's true. S- some horses were drowned in some uh, river crossing scenes. Some other animals were killed. Uh, I think like a rabbit in one case. Mm-hmm. So there are certain uh, certain things like that which definitely were even off-putting even at the time and are certainly off-putting today. Yeah. So if you do watch this film, please keep those uh, those caveats in mind. It is a it is a product of a less uh, conscious time, socially conscious time. And uh, I guess an- another point, too, that we like to talk about, just to completely ham-handedly go into another segue here, uh, soundtrack slash score, hmm. one, one category we like to uh, talk about. John Williams of uh, Star Wars fame did the, uh, did the score to this. He did a score to another film that we did recently. I can't remember... Which one that was? It was the last one we watched. Was it? it? No. No, or right, maybe the one before. One. It's they're all kind of blending together at this point. Yeah. You know, you can only watch so many movies without, you know, forgetting all of them. But uh this one was really good because it was not really an or- orchestral arrangement at all. It was you know, you had like banjos, you had some guitars, uh you know, like you had much more traditional organic instruments. I mean, organic versus, you know, electronic or something, but uh, it was a it was a very expressive score, and it definitely um, caught your attention too. And it really was effective at like setting tone and mood, and letting you know when something was maybe just a little bit silly, mm-hmm. without being like overly silly. So I mean, it was it was a uh, nice nicely done. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it integrated well, just kind of in the background. Uh, it didn't ever take over. Um, as far as some other John Williams scores do. Oh, where it just completely envelops what's on the screen and you don't even see it. Right. It's yeah. more, it's definitely more in the background and more blends in well, which is why it works well. But it's still, it's still, because I, I mean, we, we, you know, we, we talk about the, the, the score and soundtrack on, you know, in every film that we, we look at and a lot of them are just completely forgettable. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, you can't even remember if there was music in it. And this and this you know, one even you mentioned it too, like when they were at the river, that the, they really went heavy with the bass. Oh yeah, there was like practically like seventies funk bass in there. But it was like whenever it, it was one of those cues though. Yeah. Okay, we're coming up to the river. Here comes the you know the bass is coming back in. You know, which it's it's an active place. The water's moving. Yeah. You know they're crossing, so there's a little danger. So like it it really worked well into it and it was i didn't even think of it it was subconscious for me until you said something yeah. about it out loud so like there's that bass again you know and and the bass guitar was an interesting choice at least it sounded like a bass guitar i mean it could have been a stand-up bass but no, it sounded so. it sounded electric a little bit you know certainly electrically amplified and uh yeah it just sent an interesting tone too but yeah it was just overall a good score i, I liked it enjoyed it so uh, moving on to our last little bit here, Ken, would you recommend this film? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would too. I really enjoyed it uh, all the way through, which is not common necessarily for the kind of movies we watch. Um, it was great that it was something I'd never heard of and uh, would have never watched this for any other reason ever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's really a, a, a kind of a hidden gem from the 70s. Um, you know, fantastic cast, really great writing, great dialogue. Um, I really enjoyed the, uh, the cinematography on this one, the way that the scenes were shot, the way that they were framed and, uh, 
you know, even with Marlon Brando's eccentricities in this film, it's definitely worth watching his performance, especially with the scenes with Jack Nicholson, which I think it's fair to say are all of Brando's best scenes as well. Yeah. Like that's really when his character shines the most. Which he has that other character anchor around. Yes. Whereas when he's off on his own or with other characters that don't necessarily have the the strength or the you know, the the just kind of the the They don't have presence. the gra- they don't have the gravitas to, right. to, to, to to reel him in a little. To reel him in a little bit and also just count and yeah, just, just counterbalance him a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's Jack Nicholson does have that in this film. So in that regard, those two were well cast because you really feel when he's with Jack Nicholson, that's his match. Mm-hmm. You don't feel that when he's with the other characters. So I think that may uh that's an interesting little angle there too. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, like that's the one man that uh that can best him. Yeah. And vice versa. I really enjoyed all the little, uh, like I said, kind of just the slice of life moments. And uh, you really felt like you were involved in this this whole situation. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I definitely would recommend it. And I think I would even watch it again someday. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's worthy. All right. Well, that concludes uh, this week's episode of Complimentary Cinema here on the O&M Stockroom. And we're your hosts. I am Ken O'Malley. And Brian McGarry. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week with another uh, cheap, free YouTube movie for our reviewing pleasure. And have a great night. (laughs) 